1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. Today, from London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. There's one glimmer of good news amid the global energy crisis sparked by war in Ukraine. The green transition got a boost. Along the way, some hard truths became clear. Governments are just going to have to accept that green power is pricey. And in America, a television show about Jesus Christ has turned out to be an unlikely hit. But this Jesus is pretty uh, down-to-earth, cooking, brushing his teeth, even cracking jokes. Not everyone finds the depiction divine. First up, though. For the past decade, China's Belt and Road Initiative has reflected the country's grand global ambitions. The scope of it is hard to fathom, a huge investment scheme to create shipping lanes and trading routes all the way to Africa and Europe. For President Xi Jinping, it's a means to up China's international heft and to spur plenty of industry along the way. In 2021, he hailed it as an opportunity to lift millions of people out of poverty. It even has a song dedicated to it. Roads, bridges, railroads, dams, power stations, all financed with Chinese money and built by Chinese companies. But suddenly, Mr Xi's hallmark foreign policy seems to be undergoing some belt tightening.
2: China is undergoing a massive rethink of its overseas lending program.
1: Carrie Richmond-Jones writes about finance and economics for The Economist.
2: Really, we're in a new era now, one in which poor countries, which are already struggling to pay back what they owe... Will be overlooked. The focus is now on profitable projects, richer countries, and strategic gain for China.
1: So, before we look at where things are headed, let's talk about where they were. What did Chinese lending used to look like?
2: China has a long history of overseas lending and it's gone by lots of different names in that time. There was the going out strategy in 1999, then the community of common destiny, that was in 2011, swiftly overshadowed by Xi Jinping's vision of a Chinese Belt and Road stretching across the whole world in 2013. Throughout this period, even as the slogans change, one type of project dominated, infrastructure built by Chinese firms, funded by Chinese loans. China has given loans for literally everything you can think of, all the way from the Mecca Metro, that's a railway in Saudi Arabia. It was built at a cost of about $16.5 billion by a construction firm that once actually laid tracks for Mao, all the way to the start of Bandar, a shiny new city in the Malaysian state of Johor. It's an attempt to establish a rival to Singapore, but underground.
1: So all of these big projects all over the world, all told, come with a big price tag.
2: Massive. According to our estimates, the world owed China's eight biggest state-owned banks at least £1.6 by 2019. That's the equivalent to around 2% of global GDP. Because the kind of stuff that China lends for is built by Chinese firms, the money almost never leaves the country. So that should work for everyone, right? And at first it did. State-run banks were flush with dollars from rocketing exports and the financial crisis, and state-run construction giants got more business and a guaranteed profit. The bosses of both also scored points with officials, and the officials, they got huge diplomatic pull over borrowers. Loans flowed to Africa in particular, which was home to receptive governments and a wealth of untapped resources.
1: But as you say, in that picture, everybody's a winner. Why change the formula?
2: because there was one big problem. Those construction companies that we were talking about, the bit of the lending system that dealt most with the borrowers because they were doing the building, they had absolutely no skin in the game. If a loan went sour, banks lost money, officials were embarrassed, but the builders still got their cut. It was guaranteed. There was just no reason to check if what they were building was sensible, let alone profitable. So they built Big ports, roads, cities, for governments that just didn't have a chance of paying them back, even before coronavirus struck, construction projects got iced. China began to rein in the program, but to do so, they had to stop banks lending because they just couldn't tame the construction companies.
1: okay, so how to to fix that giant expensive loophole then what is the new system? what's the new
2: idea? A new slogan. There are loads of slogans and they're all about sensibleness, sustainability, strategy. Officials have told construction firms that future Belt and Road projects should resemble meticulous drawings. And another one, Mr. G said, small is beautiful. So Sinosure, a state-run insurer, now refuses to allow loans to countries that are already heavily indebted to China. And construction firms have to take a stake in the projects that they work on, which gives them skin in the game. And it's already working. According to Boston University... Projects are getting physically smaller, as in their square footage is contracting.
1: So that's what it's like on the side of the the, the planners and the lenders. What about for the borrowers? How does the scene
2: change? The map of overseas lending is being redrawn. Borrowers are fundamentally changing. They now fall into two camps. There are those with a good chance of repaying, or those for which lost money is a price worth paying in itself for diplomatic or military advantage. Banks are going to fresh commodity sources, places from which Chinese firms are able to dodge Western trade tariffs like Malaysia and Indonesia. Latin America is great for minerals. Loans to friendly countries with limited geopolitical use, Angola, Venezuela, they've dried up. But the money is still flooding into the China-Pakistan economic corridor, a label for a $60 billion of megaprojects in a country that already owes more than 30% of its external debt to China. And it's because Pakistan is such a useful ally.
1: It kind of strips away any sort of pretense that might ever have been held that any of this was just good business like in the pure financial sense or, you know, goodwill or aid by another means and so on. It's much more nakedly sort of, you know, Machiavellian in its its intent now.
2: Yeah, there's almost like a stratification of borrowers, right? So you get the like the good business borrowers, where it just very clearly is about business for these Chinese firms. And then you get the second underbelly of borrowers, where they are kept permanently indebted, places like Pakistan, Djibouti. So yes, you're right, the motivations are becoming much, much clearer and much more fragmented.
1: So do all of these changes reveal what has been said before about uh, Chinese infrastructure projects like this, that it's essentially a a debt trap to, to get nations indebted to them?
2: I think it really depends on what you think a debt trap is, right? A lot of people think that China is a really malignant, big, bad, scary lender, that there's something written in its loan contracts that is a trap in itself. So maybe a clause that means that these countries have to keep quiet or not borrow from other people. When you look at how loan contracts work, China's are no less or more scary than the World Bank or the IMF or America. What actually just happened and the crisis of Chinese lending is that there is so much of it and it came on so fast. Some of it was useful, some of it wasn't.
1: So it's not plainly a debt trap, but it's also not strictly about business. How to make sense then of, of China's new lending policies?
2: It's completely true that Chinese banks previously lent to poor countries for massive, useless projects. One unknown is whether China's officials will be able to resist building massive projects once again. But at the same time, China also lent for massive, really useful projects, such as dams and roads in countries that couldn't borrow from anyone else because they couldn't really pay back anyone at all. And those countries, which now have no one to finance their big development projects, are going to miss the old way of doing things.
1: Kerry, thank you very much for your time.
2: Thank you very much for having me.
1: The war in Ukraine has taken its toll on energy markets the world North over. Europe.
0: I mean, Russia just cut off Nord Stream 1, the gas. We're board. talking about kind of crazy days pricing. We're talking about, you know, the average bill being up at 5,000 pounds. We're
3: going into the crunch right now, Becky. The winter, as Amrita points out, it could be horrific.
1: In terms to keep the lights on, politicians in Europe and Asia are reopening coal mines and seeking new sources of natural gas. State-owned oil giants are spending big to boost output. Governments are encouraging these dirty fuels by subsidizing energy use as citizens shiver through the winter. Private energy firms are booking huge profits. But this whole scramble hides a bigger trend. By making fossil fuels scarcer and pricier, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has actually given renewable energy a shot in the arm.
4: So on the one hand, we've seen the world's existing production capacity of both oil and gas is already close to being fully used. And we've seen energy firms, especially the ones producing oil and gas, posting record profits this year, really, really high.
1: Mathieu Favas is a finance correspondent for The Economist.
4: And on the other hand, the really high prices of oil and gas, they've triggered a boom in renewables. So amid the misery of war in Ukraine and the global energy crisis... There is a glimmer of good news, which is that the conflict seems to have
1: turbocharged the green transition. So why is that? Why has that conflict sped things up for the green transition?
4: Well, one aspect of that is that the high prices have led to a fall in consumption. So if you look at last year, the world economy became 2% less energy intensive. That is to say that... To produce one unit of GDP, we're using 2% less energy. And that's the fastest rate of improvement in a decade. And efforts to consume less were most visible in Europe, which in recent months has been helped by unusually mild temperatures. That means that as a whole, the continent has used 6-8% to less electricity this winter than in the previous one. And then all over the world, we're seeing also a lot of money, a lot of capital is being mobilized to make the economy more frugal. And last year, governments, households and firms spent $560 billion on energy efficiency investments. And a lot of that really went on two technologies. One is electric vehicles and the other one is heat pumps. And just for electric cars, for example, we saw sales of them
1: double last year. But there does seem to be a tension here, even though consumption might be down. Efficiency is the order of the day. But we know that oil and gas production is still at capacity. New exploration is still going on. It's hard to see this as a turbocharging, as you say, of the green transition.
4: Yes, the war has triggered some governments to elongate the lifespan of some fossil fuel power plants and to reopen some of the coal fired power plants, which are the most polluting kind. But our findings suggest that the crunch caused by the war in Ukraine may have fast-tracked the transition by five to ten years, despite this sort of rush to find new fossil fuel sources in the short run. And this is because people are increasingly looking for alternatives, especially in Europe, but around the world as well. Installation of rooftop solar panels, we saw a record in terms of installations last year, that rose by half. And then if you look at onshore wind projects, well, again there, we saw a record 128 gigawatts being installed, and that's a rise of thirty-five percent annually. But even more encouraging is to look at the dollar amounts that going into new renewable projects. And last year, the global capital expenditure on wind and solar assets grew from around three hundred and fifty billion dollars to nearly five hundred billion, and that was more than the investment in new and existing on and gas wells for the first time that's never happened before so that's really promising and there's also more money being earmarked for nascent technologies like green hydrogen which could help decarbonize some sectors of the economy that are hard to electrify and at the same time if you look at the politics of it the fuel squeeze has really turbocharged clean energy programs in the world's biggest economies So in America, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, setting aside hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies for clean tech. The EU is responding in kind. And the result of all that is leading the International Energy Agency, which is an official forecaster for all things energy, to predict that there will be between now and 2027, 2,400 gigawatts of renewable energy capacity added to the current total. And that's 30%
1: higher than what they had predicted before the war. And presumably, if all of that renewable capacity goes up, then on balance emissions come down.
4: Yeah, that's correct. S&P Global, which is a data firm, predicts that they will pick in 2028 at the level that the world would still have been producing in 2032 without the invasion of Ukraine. And the second thing is that once the decline starts, it's likely to be much more pronounced. You know, some predictions I've seen were planning that emissions would pretty much plateau until the 2030s, maybe. And now from 2025, it looks like they're going to be falling at a pretty fast rate. So although recent progress still falls short of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees by uh, 2100, most of the models and projections I've seen successful changes make a 2 degree rise much more
1: achievable. So on balance, this should all be viewed as good news for the energy transition.
4: It's good news, but the news could actually be much better. And that's because... The energy firms that are supposed to build this enormous amount of renewables, they're still facing very big hurdles in starting the new projects and then bringing them to completion. One big obstacle is obtaining permits. It's really hard to get governments to review projects very fast and to agree to them in a timely manner. For offshore wind farms, for example, which are big projects and should represent a sizable part of the capacity that we expect, it can take more than a decade. And to give you a sense of what that means, the IEA estimates that renewable generation capacity could rise by an extra 25% by 2027 if this sort of bureaucratic financing barriers were removed. But there is an even bigger problem, which is that energy projects are becoming less attractive for investors. Costs to build these projects, they're rising. They've been rising since last year, in part because commodity prices have been rising in the wake of the war of Ukraine. So the metals that you need to build, the wind farms, the solar farms, the grids, they've all got more expensive. That plus rising interest rates and all these projects, they need a lot of capital to break ground. And it would be fine if the developers that build the farms... Uh, could pass on this cost but it's become harder because governments have put caps on power prices and windfall taxes also that prevents the developers from passing on the costs. You know if you look at the big turbine makers they're all losing money, the renewables units of a lot of energy firms are also losing money and that's leading a lot of projects to be renegotiated and it's causing unnecessary delays to many others. So it's a big issue.
1: So, how to counteract those forces then? How should governments help all of these green projects stay on track if the incentives are shifting in the way you describe?
4: While governments need to take a long view, they are keen to keep power prices low today, which is understandable because they don't want consumers to bear the brunt of the cost of the transition. But that may be a false economy if it reduces the spending on renewables that we need to happen tomorrow. The world won't decarbonize fast enough unless renewables make real money. And, you know, also as more wind and solar capacity is built, developers will probably need to withstand even bigger cost increases in commodity prices. All this means that if investing is to stay attractive, green power will probably need to be sold at higher prices than governments had expected and what they would like. So, you know, we want the transition to happen fast enough to limit temperature rises to 2 degrees, let alone 1.5 degrees, but there must not be a race to the bottom here.
1: Matthew, thank you very much for your time.
4: Pleasure, Jason. Thank you for having me. That is all for today.
1: I have some business to attend to with my new friend. On a chilly November day, Jesus appeared in Texas. He approached a lake outside of Dallas where fishermen had failed to catch anything the night before, and he told them to cast their nets back into the water.
2: Put that down for a catch.
3: A little farther out. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. We've been doing this all night, nothing.
1: The fishermen said it would be futile, but eventually they did as he said. Moments later, their nets were teeming with fish. Such is the recreation of one of Jesus' early miracles, first described in the Gospels, and now dramatized in The Chosen, a hit television show about Jesus Christ and his disciples. The show, much of it filmed in Texas in lieu of the Levant, has become an unlikely hit, but not everyone is behind the drama's more viewer-friendly depictions of Jesus.
3: The Chosen is the most popular show you've never heard about.
1: Johnny Williams writes about America for The Economist.
3: The makers describe it as the first multi-season TV show about the life of Jesus, seen primarily through his followers. And it's produced by a fledgling studio. The director hasn't had much success in the past. The actors were not very well known, yet it is extremely popular and it has huge viewing figures and revenue as well.
1: You say extremely popular. Let's put this into context. How many people are watching this show?
3: According to Angel Studios, which is a distributor and licensor of the show, almost 110 million people have watched it on its free apps. The show also just became available on Netflix, Amazon Prime, and other streaming platforms. And they don't have numbers for those yet. But undoubtedly, many more people are watching it. The show released the first two episodes of the third season in theaters in november and they made nearly nine million dollars on opening weekend they ranked third in the box office ahead of black adam which is a big superhero movie and ticket to paradise a rom-com starring george clooney and julia roberts
1: and who are the viewers that we're talking about here presumably mostly christians themselves
3: The show mainly appeals to Christians, especially evangelicals and Catholics. But I spoke with Dallas Jenkins, the creator and the director of the show, and he tells me that it appeals to non-Christians as well. They can appreciate it in a way that even if you don't believe in the force, for example, you can still appreciate the Star Wars movies. I was recently on a flight from Mexico to the United States, and I was surprised to actually see on the in-flight entertainment system that they had the chosen already as one of the shows that you could watch on it.
1: And do we know, in a a more general sense, why it's so popular?
3: Well, one of the reasons is that it's filling a demand for Christian entertainment in America. I spoke with Dallas Jenkins, who is himself an evangelical Christian, and he told me that there have been movies and miniseries made in the past about Jesus, but they actually haven't been the most fun to watch.
1: Sometimes they, they go from Bible verse to Bible verse, miracle to miracle, It oftentimes feels very
3: stilted, very formal. His goal was to make the show feel more like a mainstream drama TV series. If you watch the show, you'll notice there are cliffhangers and there's character development. He especially wanted to portray the ordinariness of the characters. The disciples of Jesus are relatable people.
1: And I think that's part of the secret sauce of the show is that so many viewers watch it and go, I feel like I'm watching myself. I feel like Simon Peter from 2000 years ago is having the same struggles
3: that I'm having. One of them is a gambler. Another one is a victim of sexual assault. There's another one who is an architect and he just had a big project fail. And when they come to Jesus, they're seeking help, not just for some mortem fate, but for what they're currently experiencing in their lives we also see Jesus from perspective on his humanity. So you can see him cooking, you can see him playing with children, brushing his teeth. He even cracks jokes. In one scene, he's at a wedding and they're dancing and he's asked if he can help one of his disciples who's notoriously bad at dancing, if he can help him become a better dancer. And he just quips, some things even I cannot do.
1: I can imagine how that might make Jesus a little more of a relatable character for people who are not of strong faith, but I can also easily imagine that might not sit well with those of strong faith.
3: Mr. Jenkins told me that a lot of people appreciate this side of Jesus as being more human, but there are pretty conservative groups that think that Mr. Jenkins has pushed creative license a little too far. Matthew, who is one of the disciples, for example, is a tax collector, and he has this personal clash with Simon, who is a gambler and who is having trouble paying his taxes. We also see Jesus doing some pretty ordinary things like rehearsing his sermons. None of this appears in the Gospels, of course. Mr. Jenkins argues that the depiction of Jesus actually adds to the story he defends the decisions by saying that he consulted with three Bible scholars who determined whether the plots are plausible.
1: But you describe this show as the most popular show you've never heard of, kind of done not in the usual Hollywood channels. Is there a, a route for this kind of entertainment to, to enter those usual channels, the big Hollywood projects?
3: Christian filmmaking has generally been shunned by Hollywood. There have been some projects, for example, The Passion of the Christ, which was a huge success and brought in over $600 million. But even that one, Mel Gibson, who directed it, was the one who had to foot the bill. The Chosen is primarily funded through crowdfunding. For the first season, they raised nearly $10 million on Kickstarter, which is a fundraising site, at the time setting a record for a media project. What The Chosen tells us is that there is demand for high-quality Christian entertainment. And in this case, Hollywood's lack of interest in projects like these has been to the makers of The Chosen's Game.
1: Johnny, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thank you, Jason.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. Drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a rating wherever you listen. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
0: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero.